0: Well, welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us this Wednesday. You've been watching CNN's coverage of the latest indictment against former President Donald Trump. We will continue to follow all the action ahead of his expected appearance in court on Thursday. But first, there's plenty more going on elsewhere in the world. Global stocks under pressure, a slight knee-jerk reaction, I think, after a surprise U.S. debt downgrade by the ratings agency Fitch. Fitch cutting America's AAA long-term debt rating to AA+. It follows a similar move by S&P more than a decade ago. Now, regular viewers will know exactly what I think of the usefulness, let's call it that, of rating agencies. So I leave it to smarter economists to comment. Bizarre and inept, absurd, off-base. Those are some of my favorite choices. Anyway, there was a point to it, I think, and that's politics. Fitch fears a deeply divided US Congress and its ability to tackle excess debt and things like skyrocketing social benefit costs. Now, the Fitch ditch might be a slight stimulant for investors looking to take profits after a strong summer run and a solid earnings season so far. And auto giant Ford, one of the large blue chip firms to report better than expected second quarter results. Ford Beating on earnings and raising guidance amid strong demand. But losses inside its EV, its electric vehicle division, are widening. And they also pushed back their production timetable. We're we'll here from the company's CFO, John Lawler, later on in the show. But first, let's get more on that reaction to the US debt downgrade. Arlette Sines joins us now where uh, President Biden is on vacation, I believe. So, uh, yes, you're in a a holiday town to talk about this, which is an interesting one. The White House reaction to this, I think, was also interesting. We've got The Economist reaction, which was, um, I think, deeply sceptical. The White House sharing, I think, their confusion and annoyance about this.
1: Yeah, the White House really made clear their frustration quite swiftly after Fitch made this decision to downgrade the U.S. credit rating, only the second time that a major credit rating agency has done this in U.S. history. Now, Fitch had actually warned of the possibility that they might downgrade the U.S. credit rating uh, back when that debt ceiling fight was playing out, but they finally made that move yesterday, uh, releasing their analysis in a report uh, citing erosion in governance in the United States as being a key factor in that. Now, they pointed out that there have been these repeated standoffs uh, over part, certain issues, including the debt limit, uh, not just in this administration, but also over the past two decades. That is something the White House officials were also quick to point out, that this is something that spanned not just their administration. Now, also, CNN has learned that in a meeting with administration official officials, uh, Fitch said that there were serious concerns about January 6th and how that related to U.S. government Governance. Now, the White House uh, from the Treasury Department to the Press Secretary very quickly pushed back on this decision from Fitch. Se- Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying in a statement, quote, I strongly disagree with Fitch ratings decision. The change is arbitrary and based on outdated data. Fitch's decision does not change what Americans investors already know. That Treasury Secretaries remain the world's sorry, Treasury securities remain the world's preeminent safe and liquid asset. So you've seen the White House they're really trying to move quickly to counter this but what it does is it really speaks to the fact that uh, of what kind of impact the political standoffs that have become so common in Washington uh, what kind of impact that is having on a uh, financial and economic uh, situations and of course there could potentially be real uh, impacts that Americans could feel to this as well when it comes to borrowing for mortgages or other issues uh, but uh, you've also heard as you noted there are many experts uh, who have been pushing back on this as well. It's not just the White House, but this will be something that the White House is watching closely, trying to navigate, and of course, watching how those markets continue to respond throughout the day.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the key. A credit rating is about a country's ability to repay its debts, and America's dysfunction, political dysfunction, was never about the lack of financing to be able to pay back its debt. It was just about political dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mute point, but it's a great point to make. Um, Arlette, great to have you with us. Thank you. Arlette, signs there. Now, Russia continues to target Ukraine's grain infrastructure in the Odessa region. This time, drone strikes, damaging a major port on the Danube River near Romania, a NATO nation. That port has been serving as Ukraine's main alternative route for grain exports since Russia pulled out of the Black Sea initiative. Nick Payton-Walsh joins us on this. Nick, it's also important in light of the end of that deal for storage in some of these smaller ports too.
2: Yeah, that this is clearly Moscow's bid. I think to increase the urgency uh, of what they want at the negotiating table to get this grain deal back on track. And typically, for Moscow, they're using violence against civilian targets again here. Uh, but startlingly, too, these attacks—the closest uh, that Russia has got to potentially hitting a NATO member, Romania. These port facilities lining the Danube River that separates Ukraine and Romania. Romania's President Klaus Johannes saying clearly that this is unacceptable, calling it a war crime. And it again, I think, adds to the potential here of an escalation in this conflict. I think it's likely that Moscow does not want to provoke NATO into a larger role in this war. Remember, they are already arming and assisting Ukraine a lot. But we've also seen a protest from the Polish president. President, uh, about uh, an incursion, they say, by Belarusian aircraft across the border in the last 24 hours. And so this potentially forms part of a pattern of Russia now increasingly desperate, struggling on the southern front lines here to hold territory pushing and provoking NATO in small elements like this. Now, that may just be feeding into President Putin's narrative that they are at war with the entire NATO bloc. That's perhaps the Kremlin's way of explaining the disastrous uh, conduct of this invasion so far. But it is certainly, I think, a, a moment of pause. And, too, important to remember that this grain deal isn't just um, about uh, negotiation between Ukraine and Russia here. There are African states, much of the world, waiting uh, for this grain ship to resume in order to keep food prices at a sustainable level here so coming as we also see today uh, w- uh, concerns about uh, how Ukraine is progressing in the east they are suggesting some potential advance there and in the south uh, but the counteroffensive offensive still moving at a pace that is not necessarily as fast uh, as Ukraine would like it to. Julia?
0: Nick, good to have you. Thank you. Nick Payton-Walsh there. Now the French Foreign Ministry says 513 people have now been evacuated on flights from Niger to France. It follows a military coup that has pushed the country into a leadership crisis and sent shockwaves across Western Africa. There were relief among 350 French citizens arriving late Tuesday at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, some of them describing the situation they left behind. It's a bit unfortunate to leave Niger
3: in this situation. More like a hostage situation than a coup. So that's it,
2: and we're glad to be back.
1: We haven't left the house. Since it started, we haven't left the house. We've stayed inside until we were evacuated.
0: Beijing has just recorded its heaviest rainfall since records began. That's according to the National Weather Service. The remnants of Typhoon Doksuri are now battering the north of the country. And as Anna Cohen reports, it's taken a deadly toll.
4: The death toll from former super typhoon Doxuri continues to rise across China. 21 people now dead, according to authorities. 12 of those were in Beijing, with another dozen still missing. The storm has dumped the heaviest rainfall over the capital ever recorded in 140 years. Heavy rains began pummeling Beijing and surrounding areas last Saturday, with the average rainfall for the month of July falling on the capital in just 40 hours. Severe flooding washed away cars, damaged buildings and roads, with many residents needing to be evacuated. In neighbouring Hebei province, over 800,000 people were evacuated. Authorities say nine people were killed, six are still missing. Chinese leader Xi Jinping called for every effort to rescue those lost or trapped by the rain. State media reports that maximum rainfall was recorded in 10 weather stations in Hebei province, also breaking historical records. The local meteorological service says rainfall in Beijing and Hebei is expected to ease today while the storm moves towards northeastern China. As we know, China has been experiencing extreme weather and posting record temperatures this summer, which scientists believe has been exacerbated by climate change. Another typhoon is now heading towards China. Typhoon Kanun, the sixth storm this year, is powerful and slow-moving. Currently, it's lashing Japan, although authorities say it's weakened slightly. It's reached winds of 185 kilometres an hour, that's 115 miles per hour, the equivalent of a Category 3 Atlantic hurricane. So far, one person has died. Kanoon has knocked out power to one-third of homes in Okinawa. Phone and internet connections have been disrupted. The airport in Okinawa's capital has been closed for a second day. Okinawa is home to the bulk of US forces based in Japan. This typhoon is expected to move towards China and Taiwan later this week. Anna Karen, CNN,
3: Hong Kong. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number.
0: Welcome back to First Move. I'm returning to our top story once again. Former U.S. President Donald Trump set to appear in federal court in Washington, D.C. on Thursday afternoon. He's facing four criminal charges, including conspiracy to defraud the United States by seeking to overturn the result of the 2020 election. Zach Cohen joins us now. Zach, just explain to us exactly what's in this indictment and what the four charges are.
5: Yeah, this indictment really puts uh, the charges in very stark terms. Jack Smith, the special counsel who was overseeing this investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election, says Donald Trump was, quote, determined to stay in power and that he and his six unindicted co-conspirators essentially carried out a plot, a failed plot, to overturn the legitimate results. The indictment really details a sweeping Um, a sweeping case that Jack Smith and his fellow prosecutors have put together against the former president. You know, as you said, they include four counts, including conspiracy charges that are really serious and carry very serious repercussions if convicted. Now, obviously, Donald Trump has not been found guilty and, you know, guilty until proven innocent. But this indictment is historic on several fronts. It says that Donald Trump and these unindicted co-conspirators worked for two months after the election to overturn the results through a variety of ways, all the way leading up to January 6, when, as you know, you know, rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol and tried to keep Congress from certifying Joe Biden's legitimate victory. So Trump and was doing this all by spreading what he knew to be lies. That's what prosecutors say, and that's what this case is really built around: the idea that Trump knew what he was saying about allegations of widespread voter fraud and about the election being stolen were lies, and yet he used those to try to show distrust in the election results and ultimately try to overturn turn the election, his election loss, into a win?
0: I think the key word for me there was the unindicted. And as part of this, um, the suggestion is that he enlisted co-conspirators to assist him in his criminal efforts. And I'm, I'm reading the quote there; is They're obviously not named because at this stage they've not been charged with anything. But what's fascinating, I think, is if you look through the details, some of the quotes are so obvious that they kind of tell you who the people are. Talk to us about the potential co-conspirators.
5: Yeah, you know, the details in the indictment have allowed us to identify five of the six unindicted co-conspirators. They include people like Trump's former personal attorney Rudy Giuliani, people like John Eastman—really names that, if you were following along during the January 6th committee hearings, um, will sound familiar to you. And these you know, these six names include four attorneys. That's an important point that there are four attorneys who, the Jack, who Jack Smith, the special prosecutor here, says assisted Donald Trump in his criminal efforts. So really interesting that, you know, just because they are unindicted co-conspirators now also doesn't mean that charges couldn't come in the future. So I, I'm, if they, you know, these six people are probably not resting easy at this stage.
0: Hmm. Zach, thank you for that. Okay, coming up after the break, an electrified future for Ford, we hear from CFO John Lawler, who's talking EVs, hybrids, and all the technologies that come along with it. Welcome back to First Move with Ford in focus. The giant automaker posting better than expected results for the second quarter and raising its 2023 profit guidance too. Though there was a bit of a reality check for investors regarding its electric car ambitions. Now, although sales in the period jumped to nearly $2 billion, Ford said its annual losses in that division this year could hit $4.5 billion. That was way higher than expected. They also pushed back their production target targets too. Now, while demand for EVs may be a touch slower than expected, the firm also said it's working on a slate of new hybrid models to facilitate the transition. Now, I spoke to Ford's Chief Financial Officer John Lawler about EVs and why take-up has been slightly slower than anticipated. John, fantastic to have you with us. A A fascinating and a strong quarter, I think, for Ford. But I do want to start with, I think, what investors fixated on most of all, which was the reality check I think you provided in the electric vehicle sphere. What do we need to understand and and why is adoption slower in your mind than anticipated?
6: Well, I think the clear point here is that we are in the transition to electric Mm. vehicles. There's no doubt about that. Uh, The pace and rate of change into electric vehicles isn't going to be a straight line and what we're seeing uh, is that come through. Um, The important thing for us about this is being a first mover. The folks we're bringing into Ford with our electric vehicle sales, 60% of them are new on our pickup truck, 50% are new on our Mach-E vehicle, into Ford, new customers to Ford. So it's very important to understand that the lifetime value of those customers has to be understood as we do this transition, and it's positive. And we're very, very encouraged by what we're seeing on their loyalty as well. So the transitions here and being a first mover is, is is an advantage for Ford.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about both of those things. I think generally we talk about two parts of this, the upfront price, even with the cost savings that you get with no or less spending on petrol or gas, but also the charge anxiety and where do I charge this thing even if I buy it, which is, I guess, the benefit of hybrid because it gives you the best of, of both worlds in this sense. What more does it take? Because you've sort of tinkered with both. You've got the deal now in the US and Canada from next year with the supercharges. You've also tinkered with lowering some of the price points as well. What more does it take to fuel transition?
6: Well I think we're in a good spot. First of all one of the things that we've done by joining the Tesla Charge Network is we've given our customers a much broader base for charging to to ease some of that charge anxiety. The other thing we're doing is our dealers are installing high-speed chargers as well so about uh, second quarter next year, our customers will have choice of about 25,000 chargers across the country, which we think will make a big difference for them. Um, and when it comes to the, the rest of the adoption, we've moved from the uh, early adopters into early majority. So those customers are going to behave a little bit differently. We're seeing how uh, their needs need to be met. Uh, we're seeing that price is important. We're also seeing that charging is important. And we're addressing both of those issues. So the response we had to uh, recent price changes on our Lightning vehicle has been tremendous. I think our order take is up about six times since we've reduced the price. We've tripled production. So I think we're in a good spot. And I think we're in, in the spot where you're going to continue to see us ramp in volume. And you're going to continue to see the adoption rate come along. And, and being a first mover, as I said, is, is what we're doing here and is really important for us as as a company.
0: Yeah. And does it, does it also and should it also change the thinking on hybrids as well? As you've said a couple of times now, this is a transition. We, we tend to be quite binary when we talk about this. Oh, it's a, a combustion engine vehicle or it's an electric vehicle. But there, there are also transition options. And I think you see that in your numbers and the demand that you see too.
6: Absolutely. We've had a strong hybrid strategy for years. Our Mm. strategy on that has been consistent. We're in a really good shape as a company because we have a very strong ice business. We have a very strong commercial business. And now we have a, a, a growing electric business. And what we're going to see is that different use cases for the vehicles are going to see a different adoption rate into electrification. And so if you're a large, uh, you you, ta- you tow a large trailer or something, you're going to look for a hybrid before you will move into electric. And so we're offering that choice to our customers. We're giving them the ability to move into a form of electrification and I think you're going to see that pace of change accelerate as well and you're going to see a larger adoption in hybrids. And we're positioned really well for that because we have a full offer of electric vehicles as well as hybrid vehicles, gas and diesel.
0: I think the other thing, and you've said again, is the first mover advantage. And I think we've seen that in many ways with, with Tesla. You have deep pockets as well as, as a business and have pushed forward on this and done so very quickly. Um, but I think there's, there's a couple of things in this process too. It's not just about what we're driving, it's about um, how we're driving and the digital services that uh, come along with that. Um, and I think that's a crucial part of what we're seeing in this process as well. How important do you see not only the the what we're driving in that technological transition but also uh, the provision of the the opportunities that you give those drivers to do other things with this vehicle
6: well honestly i'm more excited about the the transformation around the digital experience yeah. customers have <laughs> in the too. vehicle, <laughs> then the propulsion system of electrification. I mean, these are going to be very smart vehicles, if you will, robots on the road that have intelligence. Uh, we see it come through really strongly in our commercial business, where we're able to provide, through the, the digital experience, improved productivity for our customers, which improves their bottom line, those commercial customers. It keeps their vehicle on the road at all times, and you know, downtime for them costs them money. On, on the consumer side or the retail side, driver assist technologies are advancing at a great speed. So that's a convenience for customers. Safety and security can be improved. So there are many different areas where this digital transformation is going to make a customer's life much better in their vehicle. And the utility of that vehicle or the value of that vehicle is improving. It, to me, that is much more exciting than the move to electrification. And that's exciting enough on its own.
0: Yeah, I'm a tech geek, so um, I have to say, as great as it is to talk to you about um, the cars and what's going on there, the digital side of this, to me, is fascinating. Um, A quick line on the money, though. I think part of the fright, perhaps we can call it, that we saw investors take was the the scale of losses. We know this is a cash burn business, transition, technology, whatever it is. Is is the losses that you're anticipating in the EV business of $4.5 billion this year the worst it gets?
6: Well, we're going to be very thoughtful about the investment, the pace of investment, Mm. our strategy's not changing. Um, We also understand that, you know, Bringing these customers in as a first mover is important, but we're not going to go after volume at any cost. We're going to be thoughtful about that because at the end of the day, you know, we need to be stewards of capital, uh, and and that's what we're planning on doing. Uh, Right now, we see the pace that we're on, the adoption, the first mover advantage as being important, and we'll manage that as we go forward. But, you know, we're going to manage the balance between growth, profitability, and investment.
0: One of the other things you have to manage is the supply chain, specifically when we're talking about EVs, uh, the battery and the resources that go into this. I know some of your executives have met with US lawmakers to try and negotiate around the licensing agreement with you have, that you have with a, a Chinese car maker, Cattle, and some concerns about building a, a plant in Michigan. Is that going to be resolved?
6: Yeah, I'm, I'm positive that that's going to be resolved. What this is doing is we have a fully Ford-owned factory in Michigan and we're licensing technology, battery technology that is only available uh, from uh, China. And this is good for consumers because the cost of these batteries is much less. So it's a Ford facility. It's Ford manufacturing employees. It's wholly owned by Ford. And we're licensing technology, bringing that technology to the United States. It is not here. And we think that's a good move. We're investing billions in Michigan in manufacturing in Michigan.
0: Yeah, and we can't let perhaps uh, geopolitics and political dysfunction uh, get in the way of what's best for the consumer and for technological development in this country, too.
6: Yeah. And and that's important. You know, bringing that technology here, learning how to produce that technology, I think that's going to be an advantage for Ford. And I think it's going to be an advantage down the road here in the United States.
0: One of the other potential stumbling blocks, if I bring it back to the United States too, and we've seen this for for other companies, big companies in this country, is um, negotiations with unions at a time of uh, tightness in the labor market. I know those negotiations have just started with with auto workers. Should we be concerned about the risks, potentially, of of strikes later on this year? And do you have a contingency plan to mitigate it if we have a worst-case scenario?
6: Well, it's important to understand that Ford employs more UAW workers than anyone else, mm. and we produce more vehicles in the United States than anyone else. So it's really important for us to have a strong relationship with our workers in the union. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful on this. I think we can work through things. Um, We have a good relationship with the union and, um, you know, it's not appropriate for us to be talking about the negotiations in public. We'll do it with our partners. But, you know, I'm hopeful we'll be able able to come to a a positive solution overall, not only for our workers, but for us as a company in the industry.
0: Fingers crossed. And um, final line, John, I just want to get your take on what happened overnight with Fitch, the rating agency. Lowering the U.S.'s credit rating from from AAA to to AA plus, I think in the past this would have um, had far more of an effect, perhaps than than it had in terms of financial markets and concern today. But the, the message, I think, to lawmakers in this was my strongest takeaway. What do you make of it? Well,
6: I, I think we have to take away, and you have to you have to pause here because, you know, ultimately this is going to force the capital to be more expensive and that's going to limit investment and you know that the implications of that are broad so we need to be thoughtful about how we're approaching this what the root cause is that's driving it and then what the resolution is to to avoid further situations like this because you know it's important that we have the lowest cost of capital that we can so we can continue to invest and uh, that's important for our country and important for growth
0: yeah makes perfect sense to me final word ford Today, but Ford are the future, too. Things to be excited Ford. about.
6: Absolutely. Our future. You know, I've been at this company for over 30 years. And the future that we have now is beyond what I could have imagined a few years ago. Uh, The move to digitization, the electrification future, uh, these vehicles are going to be something special that consumers are going to be blown away by as we start to launch our second generation of electric vehicles and digital architecture. It's very exciting to be at the forefront of that and this transformation in this industry.
0: Yeah, robots on the road. (laughs) I think that was your line. (laughs) Great to chat to you, John. Thank you.
6: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Okay, coming up on First Move, Syrians contending with one disaster after another. Just a few months after a massive earthquake hit the war-torn nation, now a new threat from wildfires.
3: The Assignment with me, Adi Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your
1: favorite podcast app.
0: Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running, and we can call it a wobbly Wednesday or perhaps a Fitch glitch. The major averages softer after the US debt agency's surprise move to cut its US credit rating by. A notch so that's from aaa to aa plus the last time the us suffered a debt downgrade more than 10 years ago the s&p 500 actually fell some 7% so that's your comparison clearly we don't expect anywhere near those kind of losses this time around and as i've already mentioned many economists also criticizing the fitch move and asking why now just on the financials alone like debt levels one could argue this is justified the problem is this is america and it's a different case Also, this session, perhaps a bit of nervousness, too, ahead of big tech earnings on Thursday and the upcoming U.S. jobs report on Friday. A just-released report shows U.S. private sector jobs growth surpassing expectations by a wide margin last month. More than 300,000 jobs added suggested continuing strength for the U.S. economy and the jobs market. Now... Earlier in the show, we saw the chaos caused by flooding in China. While well, meanwhile in Syria, wildfires are now bringing destruction in areas already decimated by war and a massive earthquake, if you remember, earlier this year. Eleni Jokos has this report.
7: A war, an earthquake, and now a wildfire. Syrian farmer Izzedine Suheira has faced every one of these disasters. His home, as he told Reuters, already damaged by war and also by February's earthquake. Now the orchids, his only source of livelihood, are burnt to ashes.
6: It left us with nothing at all. Now we need everything. We even need bread because we don't even have trees anymore and nothing to spend.
7: Like many parts of the Mediterranean region, Syria's Latakia province has been severely affected by wildfires in recent weeks. Syria's agriculture minister says fires here burned for over five days before firefighters could get them under control.
5: Most of the fires have been well controlled. There are two to three locations. We dealt with them with all available capabilities.
7: Firefighters also struggled to put out the fires in Syria's Homs and Hama provinces earlier this month. And Syria's White Helmets, a volunteer rescue and emergency group, also battled fires in Idlib province last week. As for the culprit, Zahara says extreme heat is to blame for the destruction of his olive, pomegranate and walnut trees.
6: I have never witnessed such weather. The temperature has been very high during the past 15 to 20 days. And because trees and land are exposed to high temperatures for a long time, they burnt very quickly. A
7: spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross told Reuters Syria's war-torn population is among the most vulnerable to climate change. Over a decade of conflict has made everything weak, either infrastructure or the resilience of of people. If we mention that, 50% 50% of the food production of agriculture production is less uh, due to the conflict and a climate change combined. But these countries are unfortunately, as mentioned, forgotten by when it comes to climate coping and adaptation and to climate action. Besides erratic rainfall and rising heat, the ICRC says dust storms, desertification and land loss have been impacting Syrian farmers for years. Eleni Jarkas,
0: CNN. And finally, on First Move, NASA says it's basically shouting into space to try and re-establish contact with a 46-year-old space probe. We have ignition and we have liftoff off of the Titan spacecraft carrying the first of two
6: Voyager spacecraft to extend man's senses farther into the solar system than ever before.
0: They were launched in 1977. Voyager 2 was launched in 1977 to study the other planets and it's now nearly 20 billion kilometers from Earth, well beyond the limits of our solar system. NASA is now listening to Voyager's heartbeat, as they call it, with the help of an international array of giant antennas and radio science groups. Commands from NASA last month accidentally caused the craft's antenna to point away from Earth, meaning communication was lost. NASA now hopes new commands can reset the antenna towards Earth, although it admits, unfortunately, the chances are low. It sounds like Voyager 2 might need a hearing aid. You know, sometimes I get told I need one of those too, particularly when I'm wrapped. I call it selective hearing. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at G Chatterley CNN. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow.
3: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature, quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.